please turn once again in your Bibles to the passage that we've already read from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews and the 13th chapter. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, where we read these words, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. As many of you know, uh, last Saturday I officiated and preached at a wedding. And so what I thought I would like to do this morning is simply take my wedding sermon and expand it. So actually the third head of our sermon this morning is my wedding sermon. And for that sermon, I just dealt with these opening three words in our text, marriage is honorable. But this morning I'd like to go ahead and address the whole verse. And I've broken it up into three parts. And actually what I want to do is I want to close with the opening words because those words marriage is honorable is really like a summary or a culmination of everything else that's in that verse. So my first head will be taken from the last words of this verse that the marriage bed is undefiled but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. My second heading will be in these two words that we see in the opening of this this first line here, in all. That is, marriage is honorable in all. What does that mean, that it's honorable in all? Or as uh, we have in the Geneva Bible, that marriage is honorable among all. So what is that? And the third head, as I say, will be from the wedding sermon. And it's just found from these first words that marriage is honorable. Marriage is honorable. In our day, we live in an overly sexualized culture where the ethics of the world have found a home in the church. We think nothing of a couple living together outside of marriage as long as they are engaged to be married, or more often, as long as they are seriously considering marriage, or at least as long as they are in love with each other, then it's justified. It's justified that they are living together outside of marriage. After all, we are often told that marriage is just a piece of paper. And so this cohabitation outside of marriage may last for years. And while this lifestyle continues, they may regularly attend church. They may profess to be Christians without the least hint of incongruity or any suspicion on the part of the couple of their sinfulness. Indeed, such cohabitation is deemed as patently sensible in a day when the divorce rate is so high. The idea is that to live together as a, as a trial run, as it were, is very practical. 
But as Matthew Henry comments on our text here, he writes that God will call such sins as fornication and adultery by their proper names, not by the names of love and gallantry, but of whoredom and adultery. The word translated here in our text as whoremongers can also be rendered as fornicators. And it comes from the Greek word pornos. This word also means a male prostitute. And this Greek word is closely related to another Greek word for a female prostitute, porne. You may recognize this word as one of the roots for another word, pornography. Pornographe. Literally in the Greek, it means a writing of prostitution or a writing of fornication. But you see, in our passage, all of this, this whoremongering or fornication, this adultery, which we are told clearly and unmistakably God will judge, all of that is being opposed to and juxtaposed against this idea that the marriage bed is undefiled. You see, the Word of God unmistakably here is setting up a contrast for us between, if you will, the bed of hormongering or the bed of fornication or the bed of adultery, all those things in opposition to the marriage bed. And this word here where we read that the marriage bed is undefiled in the original language means to be unstained, unsoiled, pure. There's a purity about the marriage bed in contrast and in opposition to the beds of whoremongers and adulterers. This contrast is clearly being presented to us in Scripture. This opposition is here to teach us what is meant by these things. Also, when it says that the marriage bed is undefiled, the word bed there can mean a place of repose. It's as if to say that the marriage bed is, is a place of repose for purity. It's a place of rest and godly chastity. That's the marriage bed. And so you see again, there is this opposition, this contrast in our text here between, if you will, the bed of the whoremongers and adulterers and the marriage bed. In opposition to the marriage bed, those who are in the bed of fornication, they take license, and by their taking of license, which is not liberty, but license, they sear each their own conscience while at the same time denying their bondage to sin. In opposition to the marriage bed, in the bed of fornication, by their faithlessness to God's law, which is holy, just, and good, they smother their hope for a better life. In opposition to the marriage bed, in the bed of fornication, they argue in darkness if freedom may rather be found in the marriage bed, which is the only place where that freedom may be found. 
And so, to borrow the words from a Puritan named William Secker in his wedding sermon called A Wedding Ring for the Finger, whoremongers and adulterers in our text are like those who use too many for their lust to choose any one for their love. He makes this uh, brilliant illustration, I think, when he says that their tables are so largely spread that they cannot feed upon just one dish. That is the nature of this sin of whoremongering and fornication and adultery. And so, I want to address the young single adults. Don't let your boyfriend or your girlfriend or anyone else deceive you. Don't let them persuade you, as I've heard it said, that nowhere in the Bible does it forbid sex outside of marriage. For example, in our text here, as we just said, it says that fornicators God will judge. But also, very plainly, the scripture teaches us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for example, that fornication is indeed a sin and forbidden by the Holy Scripture. For we read there in verses 3 and 4, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. How more express could this be in the Scripture when it says that you should abstain from it? You should abstain from fornication. And then it says by emphasis, for this is the will of God. This is God's will for you, that you abstain from fornication. What about what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20? We read there, flee fornication. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and that you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So again, the Bible is plain, and it states it expressly, flee fornication. So we can't say that the Bible does not teach that it is sinful to be engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, sadly, in the the ages of the church, there was a time, especially, not that it's no longer true today, but it was especially true in the Middle Ages, that there were those in the church that disparaged marriage. Ambrose, who was one of the church fathers, asserted that married people ought to blush at the state in which they are living. You see, there's this idea that conjugal relations in marriage is something shameful, something to blush at. But according to our text, the marriage bed is not shameful. It is pure, it is clean, it is undefiled, in opposition to those other filthy lusts 
again, of whoremongering, fornication, adultery. In fact, there is nothing whatsoever unholy about the marriage bed. There is just as much chastity in the marriage bed as there is in celibacy. That's the teaching of the Word of God. The Puritan William Ames, in his highly acclaimed Marrow Theology, spoke of a virginal chastity, but at the same time he also spoke, and he may have coined this term, of what he called conjugal chastity. See, there's a chastity within marriage. It's not just a chastity in virginity. And we see this in the scripture. He references this place in the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the context there is talking about the aged women instructing the younger married women. And we read that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So you see here, in the word of God, it's speaking of young women who are married. We know it's about married young women because it refers to their husbands in two places in these two verses. But one of the things that the aged woman is to instruct the younger women in is how to be chaste. So if chastity is only found in celibacy, then what does it mean here in the Word of God when it's speaking of married women being taught to be chaste? So there is a conjugal chastity, a purity in marriage, nothing to be ashamed of. The marriage bed is undefiled. Another church father named Tertullian claimed that marriage and adultery are not intrinsically different, but only in the degree of their illegitimacy. You see what he's saying? He's saying it's as if to say that both are illegitimate, marriage and adultery, it's just that marriage is a little bit less illegitimate. That is confuted, contradicted by the Word of God that we're looking at this morning. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. Historically, Roman Catholicism glorifies virginity and celibacy. Think about, for example, the, the notion of the perpetual virginity of a Mother Mary. Many of the church fathers praise virginity as superior to marriage. The Council of Trent even denounced anyone who denied this. So, not only was virginity praised, but even deified. And at the same time, marriage was belittled and disparaged. And yet God says in his holy word, marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. John Calvin says that marriage is not an indulgence, as another church father, Jerome, had said. Calvin says, marriage is not profane. It is not some kind of compromise of Christian perfection. And Matthew Poole, in a similar vein, says, in commenting on this text, 
that the marriage bed is so far from being unclean, filthy, and inconsistent with the purity of Christ that it is holy, pure, and chaste in itself. Furthermore, the marriage bed is a most excellent means of preserving chastity, far from it being unchaste. The marriage bed is an excellent means of preserving chastity among the subjects of Christ's kingdom. I've always delighted in a quote from a theologian by the name of William Nevins. Reverend William Nevins wrote in a a book he'd written called Thoughts on Popery. Here, Nevins is addressing the question as to whether or not there is a holier state than matrimony. Nevins says, in one of his last letters to Mr. Breckenridge, Mr. Hughes of Philadelphia, says that the Catholic Church does not forbid marriage, but, quote, she holds, however, that there is a holier state. You see, the, the Catholics saying, we're not forbidding marriage. We're not teaching that doctrine of devils of forbidding marriage, which is very questionable. But he goes on to say, but we do, however, teach that there is a state that's holier than marriage. The author here, Nevins, Reverend Nevins, says, When I had read the letter thus far, I stopped and said to myself, How is this? A holier state? I must look into this. So I thought a moment, and I came to the conclusion that I could not hold with the Catholic Church in this thing for the following reasons, among others. And I'll just read to you his first reason, his first argument. Because, in other words, the reason that this pastor cannot hold to the idea that there was a holier state than holy matrimony, he says that because, according to this doctrine, there is a holier state than that to which Enoch attains and from which he was translated. Do you remember who Enoch was in the Old Testament? Children, remember he was one of how many examples can we think of in the Old Testament where someone did not pass through death, but they were actually bodily taken up into heaven? One was Enoch, and who was the other one? That's right, Elijah. And so, Nevin's perhaps a bit tongue-in-cheek here, is saying, Enoch, we know, was a married man, And he begat sons and daughters, so Enoch was a family man. And it would seem that he married earlier than any other patriarch. And yet all the while, after his marriage for 300 years, we read that he walked with God. This is 300 years after he married and was having children. We read that he walked with God. And he had this testimony that he pleased God. And God, in honor of his eminent piety, translated him that he should not see death. Nevins asked, Now, how do you suppose I'm going to believe that the state of a Roman priest is holier than that of Enoch? And that he would have been a better man if he had let marriage alone? Never. I would ask, Do the priests do more than walk with God, as Enoch had done? 
Have they a higher testimony than that they please God? Have the Roman priests been translated like Enoch has been? What is the reason we never hear of their holier state being so honored by God? Let us turn now to our second head, which is found in the words of our text where we read in all or among all. That is, marriage is honorable in all, among all. What does that mean? We think that it does not mean that marriage is honorable in all things, though it certainly is. But by the context, this is being juxtaposed against those other persons that we were just speaking of, the whoremongers and the adulterers, which are not things, but people. And so it seems rather that when we read these words in all, that it means that marriage is honorable in all among all people, among all sorts or kinds of people, marriage is honorable. And so you see here, the Word of God is teaching us that marriage is honorable among people from all different walks of life. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done, where you're heading to. If you marry, marriage is honorable. Marriage is honorable for people of all intellects, among all who are of legal age to marry, whether you're old or you're young. Marriage is honorable of all races, all classes, all languages. Whether you're poor or you're rich, marriage is honorable in all. That means also that marriage is honorable in our youth. And indeed, if you look at the teaching of the Word of God, it's clear that the season of marriage most properly is our youth. Not that it's at all discouraged to marry at other ages, but just in the sense of what is most seasonable in our lives, God made it to be our youth. The days of our youth is that most seasonable time in which we are to marry. And we know this from various scriptures that talk about, and they use this, this phrase, we see it repeatedly in the scripture, the wife of your youth, the husband of your youth. The idea is that marriage is something where you join together with your best friend who's going to be a, your dearest and closest companion for the rest of your life. That you're going to grow old together, that you're going to have this history, you can look back and see, ah, this is my wife, this is my husband, this is my friend, my dear friend that I've known all my life. That's all packed into the biblical expressions of the wife of your youth or the husband of your youth. It's your companion for your whole lifetime. And so again I say that youth is the most seasonable time for us to marry, but not to exclude marriage at other ages, for again, marriage is honorable in all. Whether it be young or old, marriage is honorable. And so marriage is honorable even for those that still seem to be rather immature, immature of character. Marriage is honorable for them too. Marriage is honorable even for those that are incompatible, 
with each other. And I'll explain this in just a moment. Marriage is honorable even for those who are not soulmates with one another. Marriage is honorable for the blue-collar worker and for those in college. Marriage is honorable for those who have not yet established themselves in a career. Marriage is honorable for widows and for widowers. Because, you see, the Word of God tells us that marriage is honorable in all. Marriage is honorable for single mothers. Marriage is honorable for those who were born outside of marriage. It's honorable for them, too. Marriage is honorable for the mentally handicapped, which I have also seen can work. But let me highlight a few of these. Marriage is honorable, as I said, even for the immature. Perhaps you've heard it said that if you wait to have children, as a married couple, if you wait to have children until you can afford them, then you will never have any children, right? So in the same way, if you wait to get married until you are of a mature character, it means you will never get married. And indeed, this way of thinking forgets marriage is something intended to change us. Marriage is something intended to mature us. Where in the Bible does it say that you must be of a mature character before you can marry? Where is that in the scripture? As I said, rather, instead, marriage is the best means to maturity. No one, I tell you, no one can avoid being changed by marriage. Isn't that right? We are all changed as we pass through the the doors, as it were, of holy matrimony. And also, we must remember, there is nothing in this world like love for your spouse, like love for a woman if you're a man, or love for your husband if you're a woman, which will stir you up to take responsibility for your life. There's nothing like it. You can look at men who are like what we might call losers, men who just are lost and they don't seem to have any direction in their lives, and they get married and suddenly you don't even recognize who they are because they love this woman, this wife, this gift of God that's been given to them. They are motivated like nothing else to finally buckle down and have a little bit of self-discipline and take responsibility for themselves and pursue those things in their lives that they should have been pursuing all along. So I say that marriage, again, is honorable even for those who are considered immature. Similarly, marriage is honorable also for those who are not yet well established in their career, right? Where do we see in the Bible again that you should be well established in your career before you get married. Now granted, the Bible says that when you're married, you're responsible to take care of and provide for your spouse and your family. But where does it say that you have to be well established already in your career before you can even begin to contemplate marriage? Fathers, let me ask you. When you were young and you wanted to marry your bride... 
were you already established in your career? I think probably not for most of us. Then why should you ask your prospective son-in-law, are you able to keep my daughter in the style to which she is accustomed? Marriage is honorable in all, even for those who are poor as they start out on their life together. This also means, quite similarly, that marriage is honorable even for the college students. We often hear parents say, well, you have to finish college before you get married. Did you know that actually contrary to conventional wisdom, students seem to perform better academically once they are married? Think about it. They're not distracted by the dating scene. They're not distracted by their loneliness. They're not distracted by the burning that we read of in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so they can focus on their responsibilities and focus on their schooling and even perform better than they would have otherwise. We must see as we hear the word of God, as we read the word of God, marriage is honorable and all, we must recognize what a blessing marriage is. What a good gift we have from the Lord in the gift of marriage. So parents, why would you want to hold back your adult children from such a blessed gift? Did you know that according to the teaching of our Westminster Larger Catechism, as it treats the Decalogue, and it treats specifically the Seventh Commandment, the commandment that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and it explains that and opens up that commandment to us, that we learn that an undue delay of marriage, an undue delay of marriage, is a form of adultery, because it falls under that same head of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. We should not delay marriage unnecessarily, because then, of course, we are putting an obstacle before us. We're providing opportunities for temptation that would not be there if we married in a seasonable time. Parents, are you more concerned about your children's livelihood than their avoidance of sexual temptation? Have you read in God's Word, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that in order to avoid fornication, we must do what? We must marry. That's what the scripture tells us. That's the counsel of the word of God. Let me just turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, the apostle says, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. See? This is the biblical remedy to avoid the sin of fornication. That same sin that we read of in our text that God will judge. How can we avoid that sin? The Word of God tells us here. If you want to avoid it, as if to say, there's no other or better way to avoid it, let's not think that we are wiser than God and have a better remedy than He has. He says, if you want to avoid fornication... Do what? Be married. Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. 
Similarly, in verse 9 of that passage, it says, but if they cannot contain, that is, if you do not have self-control over your sexual desires, it says, let them marry. And it says, for it is better to marry than to burn. That's the biblical remedy. That's the biblical way of avoiding fornication. I don't have the quote in front of me, but it just comes to mind uh, John Calvin in his Institutes as he's treating the same commandment, the seventh commandment. In that context, in the context of the same scripture, he says, don't come to me and tell me that in Christ I can do all things in him who strengthens me if you are walking outside of God's calling. If you are walking outside of God's calling, and this is a calling from God, to be married, if you can no longer contain, then why should you expect the Lord's help in avoiding this temptation? You see? Each man should walk in his own calling. And to avoid fornication, let each man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. Marriage is honorable in all. Marriage is honorable also for those as we said, who are not compatible with each other. Now I say this with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, for compatibility is what the world offers up as the main ingredient to successful marriage. But again, where is that in the Bible? Where does it say in the Bible that you must, as far as possible, have all your interests in common, you need to have uh, similar backgrounds, you know, your fathers needed to have made a similar level of income. Compatibility, that's what we mean in our day for compatibility. Now, the Word of God does tell us that our spouse should be meet, that is, should be suitable to us. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that suitability is in terms of compatibility. Yet the world emphasizes this point for marriage that if you want to have a successful marriage you must be compatible but I say again where is that in the Word of God now it's true that the Christian should marry only in the Lord and so the couple to be married should have a common faith in the Lord and I would even go further and say that they should share the same distinctives of that faith but there's no need, really, for them to hold as many common interests as possible or to have as much in common in their background as possible in order for them to marry well. Instead, what a couple needs for marriage is the willingness to submit to the Lord together and to look to the Bible, the Word of God, to be their guide for conflict that they encounter in their marriage. That's what they need more than compatibility. They need to agree together to submit themselves under the authority of the Word of God for their marriage. So, a Christian does not need to find a spouse that has a keen interest in their career choice. I've seen this. Uh, and emails that are distributed within the church, which is a good thing. 
for a man or woman who's seeking to be married, for others to know about it within the church of Christ. And maybe the Lord will use that providence to bring two people together in marriage. But I've also seen how the person that's seeking a spouse has all these demands. That this, the spouse they're looking for needs to have the same interests and the same interest in their career choice, which again is really not biblically required. And then we also hear a phrase, and I think of this in context of what we spoke of in the opening about couples who live together as a trial run of marriage before they get married. You hear of this expression that, well, I wanted to find out if this other person was, quote, sexually compatible. You know, I'm hearing this more and more. I don't know if you've heard of this expression. But they say that this is the kind of compatibility that we need for our marriage to go well. (laughs) What does that mean? Sexual incompatibility, or rather sexual compatibility, does that mean that they need to determine if they are anatomically complementary to each other? No. It seems like what they're really saying is, They're making these premarital demands on the marriage bed. They're saying, I better get what I want in the marriage bed or I'm not going to marry this person. How godly of a perspective is that? It's funny, I thought marriage was about giving, not taking. Indeed, we have that teaching in the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's always... Activity in the marriage bed is always other-oriented. It's always oriented to your spouse. For example, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, we read, Defraud ye not the other. Defraud ye not the other. And this comes after a verse that says that the wife does not have power over her body. In other words, not simply so. But the husband has power over her body. And likewise, the husband does not have power over his own body, simply so, but the wife does. That's the biblical teaching about the marriage bed. Not some checklist for the lust of man. Also, marriage is honorable in all means that marriage is honorable even for those who are not soulmates. And again, I say this with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. But this is, what we, this is what we hear and what we see in our, in our culture today. Everyone's looking for their soulmates. But do you know where this notion of soulmates come from? It's basically a romanticized remaking of an old pagan idea. We come across the notion of soulmates, for example, in Plato's work, The Symposium. The idea goes like this. At the beginning of humanity, human beings were androgynous. That is, each individual human being had both male and female characteristics. And the gods were beginning to feel threatened by these human beings that they may conquer them because of their strength. And so the solution that Zeus came up with, because he didn't want to destroy humanity, because after all, he still wanted the tributes that they offered to the gods. And so Zeus's solution 
was to cut each individual human being in half, to separate the male and the female characteristics that were previously in one human individual. Do you see? And so now they're separated, they're cut apart. And as a result, humanity was weakened, so they're no longer a threat to conquer the gods. And also, a little side benefit is that they're doubled in number, so the gods will receive more tributes. And the end result is that each half of the original human being now pines and longs to be reunited to that one and only other half. See, this is the derivation of the concept of soulmates, which we have romanticized in our culture. But like the other things I ask you, where in the Bible do we see anything at all like that? This is a pagan idea. And so when we see it being spoken of in the church, we should renounce it. Not only is it a false teaching and a false orientation for marriage, but it's also very dangerous for a marriage. Think about it. Because now the focus of the marriage is about self-fulfillment, not self-sacrificial love. Now, marriage is not about serving each other in love as we grow together in the grace of Christ, but it's about being satisfied, fulfilling myself. I even have heard of marriage vows where it speaks of helping the other one in their self-fulfillment. This is not a biblical orientation. So, are we married in order to pray and to encourage in the faith our spouse and to learn to love him or her as they grow in Christ and as their their sin is revealed to us? Are we going to learn to be patient and loving and not selfish and self-centered? Is that going to be our focus of marriage, even as we look forward to that day in glory when we'll see our spouse perfectly glorified, perfectly sinless? You know, that's that should be our orientation in marriage. Or is it rather that my spouse is there, not that I be changed by her or by being married to her or him, but she or he is there just for my own self-fulfillment, for my own self-actualization, because that's my soulmate. My soulmate is one that's a perfect match for me, a perfect match with who I am now already, with all my faults and my sins. And so what happens when inevitably, inevitably I tell you in marriage, you come to a point where you have conflict, you have arguments, and suddenly there's, as it were, a crisis of faith in this romantic idea of soulmates, because you say to yourself, wait a minute, I thought this was my soulmate. How, how could this be my soulmate when she doesn't understand me? How, how, how could this be my soulmate when she argues with me? She's not really helping me be very well self-actualized right now. 
And so, what do you think of your spouse? If that's your orientation, don't you think, oh, maybe I was mistaken. Maybe this isn't my soulmate. And what does that mean? That means my soulmate's still out there. I got to go find her. And it's no wonder then that we have divorce. When someone thinks in terms of, oh, I married my soulmate. We also have serial marriages because it goes through that same cycle. I'm in love. This must be my soulmate. We get married. Oh, wait a minute. This is a sinner like I am. Maybe this isn't my soulmate. I'll go find another one. I fall in love with someone else. I commit adultery. In the name of finding my soulmate, I commit adultery. And then I get married to my lover. And then, wait a minute. She's not what I expected. This is not the person I married. And so you go through the cycle again and again and again. So I tell you, this notion of a soulmate is really quite dangerous to our marriages. The truth of the matter, in contrast to this notion of soulmates, is that there isn't only one person that we could ever love and marry. The truth is, if we are willing to be self-sacrificial and giving and loving, there's any number of people that we could be happily married with. But of course, when we do marry, we are vowing to God that this is the one that I commit myself and all my love to till death do we part. So marriage is honorable, even when there is no such thing as a soulmate to marry. Let's come to our third head, which is simply taken from the opening words of our text. Marriage is honorable. Marriage is honorable. The word translated in our text is honorable. In the original language, means to be valuable, worthy, costly, most precious, esteemed and beloved. And so, again, we should not speak of marriage disparagingly. In the Apostle Paul's first epistle to Timothy in the opening of the fourth chapter, we read that to forbid marriage is a doctrine of devils. Matthew Henry, commenting on this text, writes of those who speak very reproachfully of marriage, even though it is an ordinance of God. And so, even to speak disparagingly of marriage is to teach like devils. Also, in the third commandment of God, the third of the Ten Commandments, where we read, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, as it opens up for us that commandment, we already spoke about the seventh, it says that in part this commandment means that God's ordinances should be used reverently and with holiness in our thought, meditation, word, and writing. And so, you see, to speak disparagingly of marriage is to curse God and to take his name in vain. So we should always be careful how we speak of marriage. For marriage is honorable. 
the Word of God tells us. Marriage is honorable, for one thing, because of the one who came up with it. It was the eternal, infinite, and triune God who is the one who conceived of marriage. Could there be anyone greater or anyone in any way more excellent than he is to have invented marriage? Indeed, in a manner of speaking, all three of the glorious persons of the Godhead consulted with one another for the institution of marriage, to come up with that solution for Adam. When we read that the Lord says, it is not good for man to be alone. To whom else would the Lord be speaking but himself at that point? Marriage was the first ordinance which God instituted after creation. Therefore, marriage has the honor of antiquity above all other ordinances. God was the one who ordained marriage and appointed it. All of God's works are honorable and glorious, and marriage is no exception. Think about it. It was the Lord God himself who first officiated at a wedding, wasn't it? No man or angel brought the very first bride to the very first groom. It was God himself who did that. He brought Eve to Adam, and the Lord was the one who solemnized their marriage. It is God who joined them together and made them one flesh. He knitted them together, even like the Lord's mysterious work that we read of, of the knitting or weaving of a baby in his or her mother's womb. The two shall become one flesh, the Word of God says. So you see, the Lord God himself has honored marriage, as the Puritan Daniel Rogers put it, you cannot defile that which God has stamped with honor. Marriage is honorable also in its institution. While all other ordinances were instituted outside of paradise, marriage was instituted inside of paradise, in that happiest place, and in every way the most excellent place that there ever was in this world. And remember, Marriage was given to Adam and Eve while they both were still innocent from sin. And everything was beautiful in the garden. In the creation account in the book of Genesis, after the Lord God had made each thing, we read, And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. He says this five times in the passage. And then even after the last time, we read, Behold, it was very good. But then suddenly, as we are reading along in the passage, we come to these words. It is not good. If we were careful students of the Bible at that point, we would fall out of our chairs. What? It is not good? How can that be? For you see, the Lord God says that something is not good before sin ever came into the world, before Adam's fall into sin, before Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. How can this be that there's something that's not good in paradise, in man's state of innocency? What was it that was not good? God said, 
It is not good that the man should be alone. You see, Adam was lonely. Wait a minute. This is before his fall into sin. So at that point, Adam must have had perfect communion and fellowship with God. Yes, that's right. (laughs) But Adam was lonely. Sinless Adam in paradise was lonely without his bride. You see, the Lord God made a suitable, a meet, an intimate companion for Adam. After God created Adam, he made Eve. Not some youth pastor to teach Adam to be content in his singleness. God didn't then make some youth minister to tell him that he could better serve the Lord as a single. Hey, Adam, let's get together Friday night for some pizza. What do you say? Fun and fellowship in the garden. No, Adam was lonely, and God gave him a wife. That was God's solution. In order to turn something that was not good into something that was good, God instituted marriage and honored it. Marriage is also honorable in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ honored marriage. He honored it with his presence at a wedding in Cana of Galilee and also in performing his first miracle there. Christ also honored marriage by comparing the kingdom of God to a wedding, holiness to a wedding garment, and in speaking positively about the marriage between Adam and Eve. The Word of God also honors marriage when it speaks of it as a picture of the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And the Lord Jesus Christ will purify His bride so she will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Through the shedding of Christ's blood, His bride is cleansed and forgiven. This is the gospel. Jesus loves and beautifies his bride, and he gave himself for her. He gave everything he had for her. In the same way, Scripture tells us, husbands, love your wives. It has been said before, but it is worth repeating, that we cannot properly understand our marriage relationship unless we understand the relationship between Christ and the church. So you see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is folded into, it's tucked into and hidden into each one of our marriages. Marriage is honored then, even with the gospel, the good news, God's good news to all of mankind. Let me just close with just a few simple applications. Sadly, we often act like brats before God. When we are given this precious gift of marriage, we spoil it in our hands and then blame God for it. Marriage is not evil. Sin is what is evil. Marriage is not our enemy. Indeed, sin shows itself as our enemy when it deceives us in thinking that the evil lies within our marriage. 
when actually the evil lies within ourselves. Marriage is the most intimate human relationship possible on this earth. So what do you get when two sinners marry? Conflict. But the fault, you see, is not with marriage. It's with the two sinners. Marriage is not burdensome. It is your sin in marriage which is burdensome. Marriage is not a kind of bondage. It's the sinfulness that you bring to your marriage which is a bondage. Friends, are you married? Do you have conflicts and strife with your husband or wife? Don't blame God's holy institution of marriage. For the word of God here tells us that marriage is honorable. The fault, rather, always lies with us, doesn't it? Those that are in the marriage. Are we not the ones that are given to pride? Are we not the ones that are prone to selfishness in our own marriage? Friends, if we find no joy, comfort, or help in marriage... Let us not blame the institution of marriage, which God made honorable. Let us not grumble in our hearts when we are the ones who spoil God's good gifts. For as we read in our text, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let us pray. O blessed Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are unworthy of these things, for we are so quick to take that which is pure and clean and to tarnish it and to soil it, even your blessed and good gift of marriage. Teach us, O Lord, from this text, from your holy word, not to speak disparagingly of marriage, not to defame it or dishonor it. May we uphold it according to that honor with which you have stamped it. And so, Lord, help us to do this by your grace, for we cannot do any good thing outside of your help and your grace. Please be with us now and the remainder of this worship service, for we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.